we're still in the middle of Shema. We're in the second chapter of Shema, and we are on page 93. And two weeks ago, not last week, because last week we spoke about Hanukkah, but two weeks ago, what we were discussing is how if you visart them, let's see, where is it? What does this mean? Beware lest your heart be seduced and you turn astray and you end up worshiping, serving gods of others and bowing to them. And we mentioned then that Rishwab pointed out that it does not mean that if you are going to turn astray, immediately you're going to go worship other gods. You believe in God and then all of a sudden one day you just wake up and turn around and worship other gods. It says it doesn't go so quickly. Because what happens is you believe in God and you've always believed in God, but you start getting a little bit complacent and you start having more of a difficulty in recognizing that God is this abstract God who's real because you have everything that you need. And the way it works is, unfortunately, we all have familiar with this. It is a lot easier to cry out to God from a place of pain than it is to thank God from a place of, of happiness. Right. That's just human nature. That's the way Hashem created us. Right. Perhaps because that's the system he wanted to have in place, right? The concept of sometimes bad things happen and then we pray to Hashem, right? I, I don't know exactly why that is the way, but that's the way Hashem created the world. When we have, I mean, bad things happen to us, we have an easier time relating and crying out. When we have good things happen, it's more difficult for us to relate to Hashem. So when we have everything that we need, we can get a little bit disconnected from Hashem. When we get disconnected from Hashem, we are davening to Hashem, but we will not be answered because the davening is not real. The prayer is not real. The prayer is not meaningful. It is not purposeful. It is just rote. It's just doing what we've always done. And it's just moving your lips without any real emotion, without any real sense of what and who we are speaking to. And therefore, it will become as if we are worshiping other gods. In what sense? The halacha is, not the halacha, but the Torah tells us that when you worship other gods, they won't respond to you, right? You'll talk to the gods, but they won't be able to hear you. They, they, will, they won't be able to speak to you because they're not actually gods. They're idols. They don't do anything. They have no power. What will happen is God himself will become like that kind of God. If we talk to God without recognizing what we are talking to, without the full understanding of what we are engaging in as we dive in, we will not be answered. And if you're not answered, that's what you feel God is like. Now, it becomes, unfortunately, a vicious cycle. The more you get a sense that God is not listening, the more you're going to look for something that you can relate to, for something that you are able to connect to in this world. Right? So what will happen is you won't be, you won't be able to connect to God properly. And the next step, actually, unfortunately, is you will end up looking for an idol. You'll end up looking for something real or something tangible, not, not real, God forbid, for something, <coughs> excuse me, for something tangible and less abstract. And when you look for something tangible and less abstract, what you'll end up with is a, a, an idol made out of stone. Okay. So that'll be the next step. So what we read is an interesting line. It says, the, um, the Chora Af Hashem Bachem. The chara, what is the chara? Chara means chara ap means like the wrath of God will flare up against you, right? Very scary. This is the God of the Old Testament that they always speak of as being the angry God, right? So I think this is a good place to really go through a seminal part of the Moranavuchim. The Moranavuchim is the guide to the perplexed. It was written by Rambam, Maimonides. 
And the Rabbam was a philosopher, a great Torah scholar, a great physician, an incredibly talented person, right? You know, there's a guy I know who's a lawyer and a doctor. Well, the Rambam outstripped him very, very much because he wasn't just a doctor and a rabbi and a philosopher. He really, he really, uh, you know, he took, he took it to the emptieth degree. Okay, so let's look at source number one, the Rambam. I shall explain to you when speaking on the attributes of God, in what sense we can say that a particular thing pleases him or excites his anger and his wrath. Okay, in other words, what's the Rambam bothered by? This is a problem. There's a real problem here. How could you possibly say that God is pleased, God is angry, God has wrath. Now, this problem was a problem that led to the philosopher saying that God, who is completely perfect in every which way and is shalem, complete, has no need for anything from us, has no need for anything from this world, and knows what will be, knows what is, knows what will always be, then he has no need for anything from us. And if he has no need for anything from us, and he also knows what the results are going to be beforehand, then how could God possibly be angry, possibly be happy? The whole idea of ascribing human emotions to God makes no sense if it is indeed the God who is omniscient, omnipotent, right? So the philosopher said, therefore, it's impossible. We have no connection at all. And God doesn't care what we do at all. The, the let's say, the, the, the Romans, the Greek, what they would say is that God cares, but he's not really so complete. He's not really so perfect, right? He's on a lower level. Many gods, right? You have a God who wants this, a God who wants that. Make them far more human-like. In other words, it was difficult to understand that you could talk about a perfect God who cares what we do in this world. And the philosophers seem to have a very big problem. Their problem does seem like a good question, right? The Ramam is coming to address this question. How could God be perfect and yet still be angry? doesn't make any sense. Anger means that he's disappointed. Anger means he was expecting one thing, another thing happened. If God is perfect, A, he knows what's going to happen. B, how could he possibly be angry? How could he possibly feel like something wasn't met? It's not possible. God is perfect. That's what Ramam is coming to answer. Okay? So Ramam says, and in reference to certain persons that God was pleased with them, was angry with them, or was in wrath against them. This is not the subject of the present chapter. I intend to explain in it what I am now going to say. Okay, so the first one he's going to try to explain is a, a, a separate point. And then afterwards, I think he's going to explain the, the question that I was just addressed. You must know that in examining the law and the books of the prophets, you will not find the expressions burning anger, provocation, or jealousy applied to God except in reference to idolatry. And that none but the idolater called enemy, adversary, or hater of the Lord. And then he, for, for comparison proof, and you shall serve other gods, and then the Lord's wrath will be kindled against you. That's what we just read in Shema. Lest the anger of the Lord thy God be kindled against thee, to provoke him to anger through the work of your hands. They move me to jealousy, right? So on and so forth. A lot of, a lot of proofs over here. Instances like these are innumerable. And if you examine all the examples met within the holy writings, you will find that they confirm our view. So first, the Ramam is digressing to discuss what specifically will cause God to to be described in the Torah as anger, wrath, a very specific terminology, will only be for idol worship. Now, the Rambam in, in this place right here does not actually answer the question that I brought up, but the Rambam elsewhere is going to answer that question. So just to quickly explain what the Rambam's position was, and this pretty much is the, the baseline position of everyone, when we speak about God being angry, God being happy, God laughing, God smiling, right? The Gemara tells us Fascinating idea that after the destruction of the second temple, God is no longer happy. 
And then the Gemara tells us, oh, one time there was a conversation, it was a story, and the voice from heaven told people to do a certain thing, and the people said, we're not going to listen because the Torah is no longer in the heaven, the Torah is on the earth, right? And they go back and forth, and the heaven tries to prove that it's right, and the voice and, and, and the rabbis on, on earth say, no, we're ignoring it, we don't listen to these proofs, it's not in the heavens. And Elio Anavi, the Torah, the Gemara tells us that later on, Elijah, the prophet, meets God and says to God, what were you doing when this conversation was going on down on earth? And God said, I was laughing. I was smiling, uh, laughing, smiling, I'm not sure. I was very happy, to, I was pleased to see that they did what they were supposed to do. And Tosfos over there asks the question, how can it be that God is happy? After the destruction of the second temple, God is no longer happy. And Tosfos says, well, you have to understand there was a temporary happiness, it wasn't a long-term happiness. But we seem to be taking this idea that God could be happy or angry, we seem to be taking it quite literally. The Ramam says, no, no, you have to understand what this means. Whenever we talk about God being happy, God being angry, any type of human emotions, what we are trying to do is we are trying to create a sense of reality about something that is completely abstract, that is very, very difficult to achieve without speaking about God in human-like terms. When we speak about God in human-like terms, the entire purpose of the Torah doing so is only for us to relate to God for us to recognize just how grave that specific sin is. When you hear that this is the kind of sin that would provoke terrible anger if God were to be a human, then you recognize how bad the deed is. Does that mean that God is angry in the classic sense? The anger that we think of? Absolutely not. Okay? It's a very, very important point. I have a question. Yeah. Um, so was the Rambam the first one to address this, these issues of, uh, you know, God not having a shape and, and body and, you know, and, and all that? Was he the first one or were there earlier, um, you know, um, other Tanaim or whatever that uh, addressed this? Uh... Uh, honestly, I, I'm not sure the answer to your question, but I think what I would point out is like this. If the Rambam is the first to address it, it doesn't mean that people didn't think it beforehand. It could also mean that it was so obvious that nobody felt the need to even express it, right? The, the closer that we get to when the Torah was given, the, the closer we are to the actual transmission of the Torah. That means like this. After God speaks to the Jewish people at, the, at Mount Sinai, right? At Har Sinai, God speaks to the Jewish people, okay? At that moment, would anybody have thought for a moment that God has a human form? There would never have been a thought like that. The entire time the Moshe speaks to the Jewish people, everybody realizes God does not have a human form. The Torah itself tells us that God, the Moshe says to God, please show me your face, right? And God says, I won't show you my face, I'll show you the back of my face. I'll show you the back of my head. Now, if we were standing there listening to Moshe speak, it would have been abundantly clear to us that Moshe does not mean, I want to see God's face, does he have black eyes or brown eyes, right? You know, that was clearly not what Moshe was looking to do. That would have been clearly understood. So I, I think the answer is that the further away we get from, from the actual giving of the Torah, from an actual visions of God, the, the more room for confusion about the language that the Torah is using was possible. Okay. Okay. Okay, so let's continue. So then it says like this. We continue in Shema. The Atsar est Hashemayim, and Hashem will stop up the heavens, matar, and there will be no rain. Right? That seems a little bit redundant because stopping up the heavens would be stopping the rain from coming. But then it says, and there will not be any rain. So why are we saying this in two different stages, right? Two different uh, steps of the process. 
So Rav Schwab wanted to explain like this. First, Hashem stops up the, the rain. In other words, he causes that there'll be a famine in the land because there won't be enough rain. Below Yiyamatar, what that means is that we'll be davening for rain to come and the rain will still not come. Okay? So if you do the wrong thing, then even when you daven for rain to come, it won't necessarily come. This is in the Masechet, right? That we're learning now. Yeah, so in the Many Dabio, instances of davening, you know, for rain and rain sometimes comes, sometimes doesn't come. Correct. So, so in, in the Masachet in Dafiomi right now, which we're going to be finishing soon, it's called Ta'anit. Ta'anit means a fast. And what it's talking about is the idea that when there was no rain for a certain amount of time in the land of Israel, and then sometimes outside of Israel as well, then what they would do is they would decree a series of fasts. And the fasts were not about not eating food per se. A fast is never about not eating food. A fast is about the state of mind that it leads you to get into. When you're not eating food, you're recognizing that there's something lacking, that you're that there's something missing in your life, and then you will hopefully repent to do teshuva. And what the Gemara tells us is many stories about people davening for me to come, and many stories where they were answered, many stories where they weren't answered. And two really quick stories you might be familiar with is the famous story of Choni Hamagel. Choni Hamagel is an individual. The reason Ma'agel might mean that he made a circle. Could be. That's what it comes from. What happens is like this. There's no rain. And everybody comes to him and says, Choni, we know that you're very beloved to God. So he says, okay, I will bring the rain. And he goes outside and he starts davening. And Hashem does not answer. He draws a circle on the floor around him. He says, God, your children, your children, came to me to ask for rain because they know I am like a member of your household, right? I am a you know, personal member of your household. And they said, oh, you're very close with God. Please ask for rain. So I'm asking you for rain. But God, let me be clear. I will not leave this circle until rain starts falling. So the rain starts falling and it comes in a drizzle. So Chodim Magal says, God, this is not what I asked for. I asked for a stronger rain. So the rain starts coming down really hard. So Chonia Maga says, God, this is not what I asked for either. I asked for a nice rain. It's gentle, but also strong and forceful at the same time. Okay, the rain starts coming down perfectly. And until, until the rain is like really, really high and completely the, the famine is over because the rain is enough rain to, you know, to sustain the land for a while. Chonia Maga says, God, please stop the rain. The Talmud tells us after the story, the other rabbis came over to Choni Amagel and said, if you were not Choni Amagel, we would put you in excommunication for the chutzpah way that you're speaking to God. To say, no, that's not what I was asking for. That's a very chutzpah way to speak to God, right? You don't say, that's not what I was asking for, right? But you're Choni Amagel, and clearly God is okay with what you do. He treats you like a son, and therefore we cannot put you into cheirim. We cannot put you, we cannot excommunicate you for that behavior. One, one more quick story, because this is a really beautiful one. The Talmud tells us that all the rabbis of Israel got together, the greatest rabbis of the land get together, and they're all praying for rain. Nothing happens. And then Rabbi Akiva steps out. Rabbi Akiva at that point was a young Rabbi Akiva. Rabbi Akiva lives till 130 before he is martyred by the Romans, according to our tradition. But this is a far younger point in his life. And he steps up and he says, Avinu Malkenu, right? Our father, our king. And he says, two Avinu Malkenu. He just says, God, Please, uh, you know, we, we, we rely on you. And the rain starts coming right away. And what the Talmud tells us is something very important for life. Talmud tells us that Rabbi Akiva was not as great as the other rabbis who were living at that time. Okay, And the other rabbis were not answered, and he was. And the Talmud says the difference is Rabbi Akiva has this quality, what we call being mavir al-midosav, which means he does not stand on his honor. And if someone insults him, and if someone harms him, 
he says, okay, it is what it is. And he forgives them. And the other rabbis would stand on their honor. Now, this actually was an ideological position, right? They held that it was important for people to recognize what they had done wrong. And therefore, if someone did, did wrong to them, they would actually tell them, this is the wrong thing to do. And you have to ask me for forgiveness or else I'm not going to forgive you. Rabbi Kiva, as I said, would just forgive immediately. And the reason is Rabbi Kiva comes from the house, the tradition of Beit Hillel. Beit Hillel, which is very, very humble. And the other rabbi at that point came from the house of Beit Shammai, which was humble, but they also believed in the, the strength and the ability that man can achieve. Why is this important for life? As we see from here is the power of being humble, the power of forgiving other people immediately, the power that it allows you to do to connect to God. So that story is in the, in the Talmud about asking for rain. But again and again and again in the Talmud, what it says is you ask for rain and you do teshuva, the rain comes. What we're told in this curse is if you worship idols, the rain will not come. And even when you ask for the rain, the rain will still not come. Okay. Uh, question? Yeah. Why? But Abraham was also uh, negotiating with God about uh, Sodom about the people of Zdom. So were the rabbis upset with that? It's a good question. So it seems that the, they're not upset with him that he negotiated with God. They're upset with him for the way that he spoke. In other words, <laughs> literally this morning, okay? My daughter, Ahuva, she's five years old. Before she gets her breakfast, she's like an adult. Before she has her breakfast or coffee, she doesn't drink coffee. But before she has her breakfast, she's not, she's not such an easy person to be around. Afterwards, she's, uh, she's great. Um, so this morning she tells me, um, Abba, a cinnamon bun and a tea. I was like, Ahuva, that's not how you speak to your father. Fine. So she asks, please. So I bring her the tea and she tells me, Abba, I don't want a pomegranate tea. I want a raspberry tea. Service, please. So I was like, that is unacceptable, Ahuva. You cannot speak that way to your father under any circumstances. I made her go back. Fine. Okay, we took care of it. My point is to say the problem over here with Choni Amagal was, the language that he used, the language that he used is lo kasha alti. This is not what I asked for. You don't speak that way to God. What you could say is, Hashem, is it possible to have this instead? But you don't say lo kasha alti. That's not the right way to speak, right? So it was more about the, the specific tone. And this is always, what, I mean, I tell my kids this all the time. Probably we all have told our kids that or spouse that or anybody. It's about the tone. It's not necessarily about the words. It's about the tone. And the tone over here was not the right tone. That being said, Choni Magal, it was the right tone for him. And perhaps, perhaps you can make the argument, Konya Magal's whole point was to show the closeness that somebody can achieve with God, that you can speak to God almost like a familiar, which is absurd, completely absurd. And for any of us to try that, whoa, we'd be in deep trouble. But if Konya Magal wanted to bring this point home, Konya Magal was an incredibly holy individual. And I think that's, uh, as Shiri can attest to, most of, of Tainit, probably the greatest the, the, in terms of the proportion of stories to the rest of it, I think Tainit has the most stories, of, you know, pound for pound of any, any Masechta, one story after the other. And, and, and the overwhelming thrust of these stories is really about the levels of righteousness that someone can achieve in this world, right? To believe in our potential, right? Well, I only started, so I can't attest to that yet, but I hope that it's, um, you know, a good habit because I, I want to, to, to also do the, 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 the next one, the Megillah. Um, but after that, I'm not sure because I'm going to start new work. I'm going to be busy. So I'll try. Sounds but so far, so far, I really enjoy it. Yes, that's true. So whoever wants to start something, um, you can tell me. I can send you a, a website that has both in English and in Hebrew. 
really, really great to learn. Okay, sounds good. Let's continue. So we're up to is like this. We're saying right now is the, the heavens will be stopped up. The rain will not fall. And the land will not give forth its produce because without any rain, the land doesn't produce. And then, right? And then I will remove you very quickly from upon, upon the good land that Hashem has given to you. This is a terribly frightening idea. We were supposed to go into the land of Israel and never have to leave again. In the ideal circumstance, we would still be in the land of Israel fully as the land, as the people of Israel. According to many, the reason why Moshe does not have the ability to go into the land of Israel is because if Moshe were to go into the land of Israel, it would be impossible for Hashem to put us into exile, whatever exactly that means. And what we will see over here is that actually going into exile was the best possible circumstance given the other possibility what would have had to happen to the Jewish people. The Talmud tells us like this in Gittin. Ula says that God performed charity with the people of Israel by advancing their exile by two years relative to the numerical value of the word um, that appears in the verse. Okay, so it says in the Torah, and that should have meant that we would have been completely exiled from the land of Israel. And if that would have come true, and the numerical value of the word is 852, God exiled the Jewish people from the land after only 850 years. That the punishment mentioned subsequently, utter annihilation, would not be fulfilled either. Okay? So it's important to recognize that the Talmud is telling us is like this. Hypothetically, when we go into the land of Israel, the holiest place in the world, and we are in the chosen land with the chosen people together, we have a temple in which Hashem's presence is felt, and we still do the wrong thing, we should actually, by all rights, we should be subject to complete destruction, annihilation. The only reason why we don't get annihilated is because God exiles us from the land after 100, 850 years. If we would have waited two more years, we would have reached a level that was so down, so depraved, and we would have had to be completely destroyed. So God exiles us out of kindness for us. Something that we find in a very flip side way is God takes us out of exile in the land of Egypt. He had to take us out right at that moment because had he not taken us out right at that moment, we would have reached a very low level. So on the one hand, you think of them as being very, very different. One of them, God takes us out of the redemption, redeems us from terrible places because we would have stayed there any longer. We would have been terrible. It would have been complete destruction. On the other hand, we got kicked out of the land of Israel. What the Talmud is telling you is that they're actually very similar. They are flip side of the same coin. If you would have stayed in the land of Israel any longer, we would have lost the land of Israel. We would have lost everything forever. We no longer, I don't want to say we wouldn't have been the chosen nation that bad. The Gemara is saying this language. It's, it's a difficult language to, to understand. But that seems to be, that's what the Gemara is saying, right? And according to the Talmud in Yuma, in Msachim, I'm sorry, the Talmud says, again, the reason why we go into exile is for the Jewish people. The reason is because if we kept staying in the land of Israel any longer, bad things would have happened. So it says, And I will lose you very quickly from upon the land, right? But this losing us is actually a benefit so that we won't have to get any worse punishment in the land of Israel. Okay, then we read is this something. Just a yeah. question about that. So um, according to this verse, the reason why we are um, exiled is because of idolatry. 
So any other sins are not really accountable for, or is this like the, the most severe one? Or? Yes, that's a good question. So the Talmud tells us that the reason why we get kicked out of the land of Israel for the first destruction of the temple was because of the, the three cardinal sins, idolatry and, um, and murdering and immoral relationships, right? So that's what the Talmud tells us. So idolatry is probably the first step in this process. The Rambam tells us that in the in pagan uh, temples, a lot of what they would do is they would actually do all three of these sins because what they would do is they would worship idols. They would do human sacrifice. They would have uh, orgies, right? So they would actually, all three of these sins would be part of the idolatrous process in the temple. So that's actually all connected to each other. But certainly the beginning point the, the first step in this is to turn away after from after God. You turn away from after God, bad things happen. So it says like this. It says, um, okay, fine. So we're going to get kicked out of the land of Israel. But the interesting point that Roshua pointed out, beautiful idea. I, ne I never thought of this before. It says, uh, from upon the good land, that Hashem is giving to you. Why notain? It should say natan. He gave to you. Why does it say notain? Notain means present tense, not just past tense. Hashem gave us the land already, right? So Schwab says the idea is that even when we're kicked out of the land of Israel, the land of Israel is still our land. Okay? It's still the land that God is giving us. So he points out like this. He points out we have a, a fascinating idea about what what the status of the land of Israel is, okay? So let's read right here. This is the Rambam. The Rambam tells us, the part of Eretz Yisrael, the land of Israel, that was occupied by those who had come up from Egypt, received the first consecration, which ceased to be as soon as they were exiled. Let me tell you some context over here, okay? What the, what the Rambam is talking about is the, the mitzvot hatkuyot ba'aretz, the special commandments that are dependent on the land of Israel. So if you live in the land of Israel, you have to take trumot and maisrot. You have to take certain tithing, give to the poor people, give to the Kohanim, give to the Levium. Now that's only true if you're in the part of Israel that is considered to be holy. What does that mean? If you're living in Syria and it's underneath the, the command of Israel at the moment, that's not going to actually be required to take the Trumot and Maestrot. Now Israel was conquered on different levels depending on which consecration. The first consecration means as far as David HaMelech got in conquering the land of Israel, as far as King David got. And the first consecration resulting from the mere conquest applied only for the time being, while inhabited and ruled by Israelites, not for the future. That means that when we got kicked out of the land of Israel for the 70 years in between, where the Purim miracle happens, the land of Israel was not holy. As soon as the returning exiles came up and occupied part of the land, they consecrated a second time with a sanctity lasting forever, both for the time being and the future. Okay? So that means that the second time around, it becomes holy forever. Why does it become holy forever the second time around? The second time around, we get to keep the land of Israel, not because we fought for it. We actually get to keep the land of Israel peacefully. Who gives it to us? The Persian king gives us the rights to come back and take back the land of Israel. It was under his, his rulership at that time. So I, I don't know how we can apply this today. I don't know exactly, you know, do we want to say that, like, you know, the, the partition plan is the equivalent of getting it peacefully and 1967 is the equivalent of getting it uh, not so peacefully. Fact of the matter is, what the Rambam tells us is that once we came back the second time and we received the land of Israel, it became ours forever. What does that mean? 
It means that if you steal land from someone else, right? But we know you stole it. It doesn't make a difference how long you live there. Talmud tells us you could be there forever. But if you stole it, it doesn't belong to you. There's a concept in halacha, in Jewish law, that if someone has what is called a chazaka, if someone has a, uh, they are treating a specific piece of land as if it is theirs, there typically is an assumption that while they're treating it as if it's theirs, it probably is theirs. Because if it wasn't, someone would be protesting, right? There, there's a word for this in, in, um, in, in American law as well. I forgot what it's called. Though. However, if the guy says, you know what, listen, I, I'm treating this land like it's mine. But I'll be honest, I'm squatting. It's not mine, I'm squatting. I've just been squatting for the last 20 years and no one said anything to me. The, the owner of that property has not given up his right to evict. And I'm not talking about in American law, I'm talking about halacha. So what the Rambam is telling us is like this, when we come back up and we get the land of Israel from the Persian kingdom, that becomes ours forever. And someone tries to take it away from us and the Arabs are there in between, it doesn't make any difference at all, it's still ours. Once it was ours, it is always ours. Okay, that's the, as far as the land of Israel is concerned. So let's continue and we but, read further. But there, there are um, different versions of what is now considered Eretz Israel for all the mitzvot, right? For example, um, Elat wasn't part of the first one, but you know, but since we we own it, I mean, Israel owned it, um, conquered it or whatever, then it's kind of in the gray area. That's what I heard or understood. I don't know what, what, yeah, that is true. In other words, we're not going to follow, if let's say Israel takes over, I don't know, the Sinai, Sinai yeah. Desert, like, I, I don't think that then took on the, I don't know, I don't know the exact measurements. It happens to be, we have a tradition, uh, really based on, uh, on verses in the prophets, that when Mashiach comes and we take back the land of Israel, we'll actually have the larger boundaries of the land of Israel, right? So even the, the as far as King David got, that was not, as far as what the land of Israel was supposed to look like under ideal circumstances. And when Mashiach comes, it will be expanded to take, I, I think, all the way somewhere in the middle of Iraq, I think. It'll be, it'll be quite, quite a large place. Um, uh, so when the, when the Iranians talk about bombing us, well, we know the reality is well, we're actually going to take them over. So we're not so concerned about that. And maybe not quite Iran. That's actually pretty far to the west. Yeah. Okay. So let's continue in Shema a little bit further, and then we'll stop for the day. So it says like this. It says, "Visamtem et divarai ela al levavachem vial nafshachem," and you shall place these words of Hashem upon your heart and upon your soul. This has to be integral to who you are, right? This has to be something which it is part of. It's, it's part of your heart, right, and part of your soul. There is no doubt about it that this is true. This is our belief system, and no matter what, there's no negating it. So the, the, um, it says further in the same idea. So you place these words upon your heart, upon your soul. And then it says, And then you shall take these words of the Shema, and they shall be for a sign on your, a symbol on your hand, and they shall be for tefillin on your head. So we're talking about the tefillin on your hand and your head. Okay. So Rashi says like this, fascinating idea he's quoting the Sifri the Sifri is a halachic medrash and this is Rashi in source um, it's actually not Rashi the Ramban is going to quote Rashi but the the Ramban is in source five okay Nachmanides and he's quoting the Sifri it says Vis et and you shall place these words on your heart 
And then it also says, then you shall put a symbol on your hand and you should put on tefillin. And those the words should be in the tefillin as well. Safri so says, even after you have been exiled, be distinguished by the commandments. Put on the tefillin, attach a mezuzah to the doorpost of your home so that they will not be novelties to you when you return to the land. And so scripture states, set thee up waymarks. Okay, what does waymark mean? A waymark means um, a tzion, tzion, like a, a way for you to remember. In other words, the implication of this sifri, of this halachic metrish is, is that why do we put on tefillin? Why do we put on a mezuzah when we are not in the land of Israel? Or even if we're in the land of the Israel, but the, get, the galut, the exile is still harsh upon us. The reason is so that they shall not be a novelty to you when you come back to the land. The Ramban is going to ask a very powerful question. How could this be? Why would it possibly be that you're not commanded in these mitzvot outside of the land of Israel? That's not true. Now, I've already written on the meaning of this matter that these commandments, the tefillin and the mezuzah mentioned by Rashi, are personal obligations. Typically, our general litmus test for what applies in the land of Israel and what applies outside of the land of Israel is anything that is dependent on the individual to put on themselves or to do themselves as an individual unrelated to land is still going to be relevant outside of the land of Israel. Anything that is dependent on land to, to fulfill this mitzvah, that's only going to apply in the land of Israel. So how could it be that you're not obligated to do so? Because the implication is you're not obligated to put this on, except so that you should remember the mitzvah when you come back to the land. But there is in this medrash a profound secret, and I have already alluded to it. The Ramban is, Ramban is telling us Nachmanides, and he's a, he was a great Kabbalist, and he's telling us there's a deeper meaning over here. And I'm not going to explain it, because the Ramban tells us again and again and again, there are certain things that we have to understand are given only to those who are supposed to understand it. And if you understand it already, you don't need my explanation. And if you don't understand it, you're not supposed to get my explanation. So Nabana is telling us that there's a Kabbalistic understanding over here. Rev Schwab says a beautiful answer. What's this idea? How could it be that we're saying that the mitzvah doesn't apply outside the land of Israel? It's not true, it does. Rav Schwab says in the ideal way to fulfill the mitzvah, that cannot be accomplished outside of the land of Israel. That can only be accomplished in the land of Israel. And he goes through all three of these mitzvot. Talmud Torah, learning Torah. The learning Torah that we do outside of the land of Israel is not going to be the same as the learning Torah in the land of Israel after Mashiach comes. How do I know? We all know, we discussed in the past, the concept that today, due to the circumstances, we have the oral Torah written down in books. But that's not the ideal way to transmit the oral Torah. The ideal way to transmit the oral Torah is orally and not through writing. When Mashiach comes, may he come soon, what will happen is the oral Torah will no longer be transmitted through writing. It will once again be transmitted orally. So in terms of the transmission of the Torah properly, that cannot happen right now because it's not possible. If it was transmitted orally, we would have lost it. So it had to have been transmitted in the written format. In terms of tefillin, Outside of the land of Israel, when you see a man put on tefillin, he puts on tefillin 15, 20, half an hour, 45 minutes maybe, and that's it, takes them off. But in the land of Israel, after Mashiach comes, we'll go back to the original way. And the original way was the entire day, men were wearing tefillin. They needed to go to the bathroom, they would take the tefillin off, but they were tefillin the entire day, as is clear from the Gemara. And in terms of mezuzah, the mezuzah today, really, the ideal mitzvah of mezuzah, as we read in Shema, is to put a mezuzah up on the gates to the city, means you go to Shariafo and there'll be a mezuzah. You go to Shar Shechem, there'll be a mezuzah, right? Do you imagine? No, there isn't one right now. 
Why? Because we cannot fulfill the mitzvah in its ideal format. But when Mashiach comes, we'll be able to fulfill the mitzvah in its ideal format. So the Midrash is telling us is that the way that we're fulfilling it today is not the ideal. Not that we're not obligated. Of course we're obligated on a Torah level, of course. But since we're not fulfilling it on the highest possible level, we call it a tzi'un, a sign of what it will be like when Mashiach comes. And Rashwab finishes with a fascinating idea. The Maharam Mi Rotenberg, right, who lived in a town in Germany, Rotenberg, who was the, the teacher of the Rosh, Rabbeinu Asher. His city, Rottenburg, actually had a mezuzah that was still on the gates of, of uh, Rottenburg when Rav Schwab was there in the 1900s. And Rav Schwab saw this mezuzah and the mezuzah was still intact. That, I don't know exactly, had it had been there for 900 years? Probably not. Probably was put up on- Where as, that this was? This was in Rottenburg. R-O-T-H-E-N-B-E-R-G. And that's how we spell it in English. I don't know how you... What was that? In which country? Germany. In Germany. Take care, guys. Have a great job. Next week, we're going to learn. The week after that, I'm going to take a break. I'm going to be... I'm going on a trip with my kids and, and, and Leah as well. So uh, on the 24th, well, I'll be away. But the 17th, Bezrat Hashem, we will be learning. Okay. Take care. Good job. Bye.